The format of this meeting is two 10-minute speakers followed by our information break. And then our main speaker will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker is George R. Hi, my name is George and I'm an alcoholic. I'd like to thank Pierre very much for asking me to speak and thank all of you for the enormous privilege and honor of speaking to my home group. Uh, my stats, I got sober on September 26, 1983. My home group is this group. I have a sponsor, David Kay. I work with sponsees and I, I find I'm living always in steps nine through 12. Uh, and that's certainly not where I got started. What happened? What was it like? Well, in September 1983, I was sitting in an office building in Manhattan. I was completely drunk and I was waiting to get fired. I hadn't been able to get sober for two days. I'd been sent home and told to come back sober and I couldn't do it. <clears throat> I wasn't able to feel anything. I was full of apathy. I was completely enslaved to alcohol and I knew it. How did I get there? Well, I got there through self-propulsion my own mixture of fear and rage, envy, complete disdain for other people, and alcohol. <clears throat> I was a drunk who had been running away from himself and running away from alcohol for most of my life. My father was a binge drinker, but that didn't make me one. But it did create a lot of chaos in my life when I was a kid, and I escaped it by hiding in books and school. Fantasy was preferable to reality. In a way, I was already living a double life. I never talked about what went on at home, <clears throat> but I swore I would never ever touch a drink. And that lasted until I was 12 years old. And at the age of 12, I was put in front of a punch bowl at a Christmas party. And the next thing I knew, I had drunk myself into a blackout. I passed out. I was taken away to bed. That was my first ever encounter with alcohol, and it was a, a case of complete domination. And then I never touched alcohol again. And all the way through junior high and high school, I thought that made me morally superior to other people. Mostly it was fear. Uh, but uh, somehow I managed to get away with it until I went away with co to college. And then the same thing happened to me that happened when I was 12. Someone put a glass in my hand. I drank it. I drank the next one. I ended up in a blackout. I passed out. Only this time I didn't quit. Um, alcohol got me out of a room faster than anything I had ever been able to find before. And I entered into that paradox that I think that only we can understand where I was an alcoholic running away from alcoholism by being a drunk. Um, and I, I lived like that for 18 years. I was, on a, I was on an escape from reality that lasted that long. I, uh, I ended up gravitating to a, to a profession where, where it was useful to be able to pretend that you were interested in other people. And it turned out that I was pretty good at it. Um, eventually, I ended up in New York. I worked crazy hours. I rarely went home. I was ending up in places that I didn't know how I got there with people I didn't know when I, got, when I woke up with them. I was terrified. I was full of fear. And I didn't know what to do except to run. So I thought this, the last solution to my problems was to go to South America. I found a job in our company that nobody wanted down there and I took my wife and learning disabled child with me, dumped them in Argentina and went off to Brazil for a month and then spent two years mostly in an airplane drinking. The binges of my father were, I had so surpassed them that I'm sure he would never have been able to imagine them. And then a higher power entered my life, although I didn't recognize it at all. I was called back to New York. I wasn't called back to New York because people knew I was a drunk. I was called back because they had another job for me. And I spent two more years 
living a life I'd lived before, full of terror, blackouts, not remembering what I was doing, treating my family callously when I treated them at all, and finally ending up in that office when I finally could not stop drinking for any reason at all. And while I was sitting there waiting to be fired, a friend came into my office and he said, you have to do something about this. And I said, I know I'm an alcoholic and I don't know what to do about it. I think that's the first time that the word alcoholic had ever crossed my lips. Five minutes. Thanks very much, Ashley. And within that half an hour, I suddenly lost the craving to drink. I just got lifted out of it. It was completely incontrovertible evidence to me that everything I had loudly said I didn't believe in existed. I think that a higher power impelled me to say those words. And when I said them, I was actually in the same room with the truth for the first time in 18 years. And I was introduced to AA. And I threw myself into it. heart and soul, actually. Um, I didn't get fired. In fact, I ended up getting promoted. I worked the steps. I got a sponsor. I had a home group. I worked intensively with other alcoholics. My marriage did not survive my sobriety, but my relationship with my daughter got better than it had ever been before. And then I got self-satisfied. After my marriage broke up, I moved back from the suburbs to the city and I lost touch with my sponsor. I quit going to meetings slowly but surely. I lost touch with all the friends I'd made in AA. And I began to live once again entirely for myself. I had two more kids by this time I'd remarried. They had never seen me drinking, but they were soon living with a, a cruel, tyrannical, erratic, person who was as bad as anything I'd been in my previous life, except for one thing, I didn't drink. And I had nothing to do with that. Everything that I was doing led me to believe that I should. And then I came back to AA, largely because my wife said, you have to. And the same thing happened to me that happened to me the first time. Suddenly, Everything that I was running from began to be lifted. I got a new sponsor. He brought me to this group. I began to do service. Suddenly my life began to turn back in the direction it had been before. I went through the steps and I found that I could do them more thoroughly this time than I had the last. And I learned something that I hope I can pass on, which is that previously, I think I thought that AA was supposed to work for me. But after this, I realized that I'm supposed to work for AA. And service has become a much more important part of my life than it's ever been before. I try not to move an inch away from the program. And what I've learned from that is that finally it came to me One of the promises that I think is most important in my life now, which is that God is doing things for me that I could not do for myself. I now think that AA itself is a miracle. And I want to urge all the newcomers and those coming back in this room to please stay. We're all told that we should wait until a miracle happens, but this fellowship of ourselves is a miracle and its results for me have been nothing short of miraculous when i was a kid uh, a science teacher pulled an experiment in class i think you've probably all seen it he put some iron filings on a piece of paper and ran a magnet under it and all of a sudden those very disorganized iron filings became organized they took on a pattern a a tiny piece of a pattern of a power that was invisible bigger than anything I could ever imagine one minute and that to me is Alcoholics Anonymous if we surrender to the spiritual magnetism of this program 
amazing things happen and they continue to happen as long as we work for it. Thank you very much for my... Our second 10-minute speaker is Tess R. Marilyn, hi, my name is Tess, I'm an alcoholic, I'm just hiring myself. Thank you to everyone doing service in Georgia, it's so good to hear you. Um, it's wild that I'm speaking at this meeting. This meeting has been so important to my sobriety. It was the fifth meeting I ever went to. Um, and I just remember, and it was the meeting that I met my sponsor for the first time in person. And I just remember walking into this meeting in person and seeing all of these glowing, happy people. And I just couldn't really believe it. I've been to a few meetings already, but they were small and people there were great too. But just seeing that there were there was this many of us, right? It was really mind blowing. And I think this, and I know that this meeting in this group is what got me really sober um, and has kept me sober. So I'm really grateful to be here. So what it was like, I, uh, I've i heard, you know, the idea that we're born alcoholic and sometimes I think that, but my, my new theory just for me is that I came out sort of with a, with a switch that could be flipped and it was a really sensitive, easy to flip switch. Um, because even before I had a drink, I always wanted more, like I had active fantasies like George was talking about like anything was better than where I was in that moment um, and so I just always wanted to escape and my first drink didn't help me I think that's important to say because I know that I'm somebody who is always looking for ways to disqualify myself from anger and I think I had a sip of a beer you know when I was younger and my family is big drinkers Irish Catholic huge family and, and those didn't help me for some reason, but I, I, I knew, okay, when you're a grown-up, you get to drink. You get to drink to excess. And so when I got to high school, I was 14, I guess I thought I was a grown-up. And so that is when I started really drinking. That was my I have arrived moment. Um, and I was the blackout drinker from the start. I was an antisocial person when I drank from the start. And I was always looking for for more, I was looking for an escape. I was looking for approval from other people. I was looking for the great romantic relationship that was gonna change my life. And of course I couldn't see that A, all of these things outside of myself, first of all, I would get some of those things, right? And, and they wouldn't be enough and I would want more. So those things weren't gonna fill me up, first of all. And, and that alcohol certainly was not going to help me get what I was looking which was feeling fulfilled and feeling comfortable in my own skin and, and feeling like I belonged here and that I had a purpose here and that there was a point to life, right? I was always seeking and searching and, and yet I wasn't willing to, to give up the one thing that was so kind of clearly in the way from very early on. Um, and that's sort of how it went. You know, it's um, it got worse and worse because, you know, as I got older, I got more independent and I was able to buy my own alcohol and drink by myself. I was a binge drinker and a daily drinker. Um, when I drank, I did things that I swore I would never do. Um, it was kind of like, I nevers became not yes. Um, I put myself in a lot of danger. I put other people in a lot of danger. I was really unhappy and I, I tried everything except not drinking. I did therapy. I was a very spiritual seeker. I moved all over the place. I think I've lived in eight different places in the last seven years or something. I counted it up recently. Um, but I wasn't willing to look at the alcohol even when it was pointed out to me right, very gently. Um, that's another thing I used to get stuck on and resentful. It's like, why didn't anyone have an intervention or send me to rehab? And, and you know, it wouldn't have made any difference, obviously. And then towards the end, in the last few years of my drinking, I actually, because I, like I said, just kept getting worse. And at this point, there was zero fun left. Um, I was hurting people that I loved. Um, and I attempted moderation for the, for the last, I think, like two years of my drinking. Um, 
I said, I'm an alcoholic. I took 90 days off. The 90 days proved I wasn't an alcoholic, so I started drinking again. And I did that for for a while, and it was just as miserable, even though I, you know, I wasn't blacking out as often. I wasn't uh, feeling that shame as often. It was just this white knuckle version of living that was really, really miserable. Um, and so what happened, thank you, Ashley, I see five minutes. It has to be grace. It has to be something bigger than myself. And I, I didn't like the God thing when I came in here. And um, obviously I really turned around on that because I, you know, my last night of drinking, which was December 14th, 2018, was no different. If anything, it was a lot more tame than, than a lot of the things I experienced before. You know, I drank a lot because that's what I did. Um, I didn't think it was a lot when I came in here. I was like, my last night of drinking, I only had two glasses of wine before dinner, two cocktails at dinner, and some Magner sites after dinner. And people were like, that's, that's like a lot of alcohol before 11 p.m. So bed by 11, uh, I, again, like, alcohol wasn't even, like, I couldn't get drunk anymore. Um, hadn't said anything hurtful, hadn't done anything, but I, I just woke up in the middle of the night, and I was ripped, and I just couldn't do it anymore. In a way, maybe I had felt it like that before, but this, this time would prove to be different. I just really knew I was done, and of course, being stubborn, I was dry for six months before I came to my first meeting, and I went to my first meeting on June 14th, 2019, and I'm so grateful that I did. I was connected with a sponsor, um, someone in this group, who talked to me on the phone for the next day and listened to my story and made the suggestions of, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days, we're going to read the book together, we're going to work the steps. And I've always, like I mentioned earlier, wanted to escape, wanted something more, thought there was a better way. And I listened and I'm so glad I did because life got so good for me. And I will say that I had that pink cloud. I was, that sobriety has been nothing but amazing for me. And then a couple of months ago, I was ready to drink. And it felt so out of the blue and so scary. And I wasn't going to, that's you from a few minutes ago. I wasn't, it wasn't going to drink that day, but it was like I had a plan. Like I was going to remove myself from AA and try sobriety and then meet. But in the back of my mind was this plan. That means I get to drink again someday. And that was so scary for, you know, being two and a half years sober and, and having just been, really dedicated to AA and loving AA and loving sobriety. It's, I, it just was that return of like, so all these wonderful things you have in sobriety, what if you could have that and drink too? And luckily, because I was had placed myself very much in the middle, I, I talked to sober girlfriends, I talked to people, I heard at meetings who I really liked their message and I, I stayed, right? Like I just stayed one day at a time and I, when we hear one day at a time, at least when I did when I first came in, I kind of didn't get what it meant, especially for someone who's always planning, always future dripping. Um, but that's sometimes what we have to do is is keep it in the day. And I I feel so I feel grateful for that opportunity because I think that it, it gives me a chance to help other folks who might go through that. Um, but AA works, I guess, is the message here, right? Like I still have that. I, I want more, you know, we're, we're human beings, like I have dreams, it's it's not about not wanting things, it's about knowing what we actually need, and what we actually need is to stay sober and to help other people and to feel useful to our fellow human beings, you know, not just alcoholics. Um, so I think I have like a minute left, and I'm trying to think if there's something I should say that I haven't said, but... I will say AA has given me relationships. Um, I'm a relational therapist. That's what I do for a living. And how hilarious would it have been if I had tried to do that not sober? Um, thanks, Ashley. I, I, something I've, I've realized kind of since this period where I was like ready to leave AA was we can be honest and we can be loving with people and, and they can stick around because in my family at least that that was not that's not how it works growing up so AA 
really is a gift. It's not a sentence. It's it's a group that I feel so, so lucky to be a part of. Um, and I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to talk to all of you tonight and to hear Marty. So thank you so much for my sobriety and for my life. Tonight is Marty. Good evening, everybody. My name is Marty. I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank Debra for asking me to come out and share with you guys tonight. Mindy for carrying me along. And, uh, I want to welcome all the newcomers. A little shout out to a couple of my home group members. My home group is a state connected group from Palm Desert, California. We have Brian in the audience, Jeff P, Lisa W, and Rosalind. Y'all got to get to know Rosalind. Rosalind is the best person on this planet. She just celebrated 50 years. You know, I have no excuses for not coming on to these meetings because they're on Zoom and there's technology involved because Roz is in, in her 90s with her 50 years of sobriety. And she gets on here every single day with her big old magnifying glass and checks this all out. So if she can do it, I have no excuses whatsoever. I have a sobriety date that's November 10th of 1977. I have a sponsor, his name's Father Tom from Oakland, California. And uh, I just switched to home groups. I was a member of the Pacific group for a very long time, <clears throat> but I moved out to the Palm Springs area and I got, <clears throat> I got connected to the state connected group. Um, and today's the anniversary of my last sponsor's passing. I uh, had Clancy as a sponsor and it was really weird because all of a sudden I felt emotions happening today. I don't know about you guys, but I don't do emotions very well. So I had these emotions. I couldn't figure what it out, what it was. It's like it's August twenty fourth. What's so big about August twenty fourth? I recall because last year I was the secretary of the Pacific Group meeting, you know, and I got the the hourly, sometimes daily updates from Clancy's family on how he was doing because I was announcing that every Wednesday night his progress and what was going on. So I got the call at 10.15 last year uh, that he passed. And I was just in total, total shock, you know? I don't know why, I just thought, I thought he was gonna live forever. You know, I thought even after a nuclear holocaust, there'd be cockroaches and Clancy, you know? So, but that's not the deal. Unfortunately, he left us. He's up in the big sky with Norm Alpin and Chuck C, you know, demanding a cup of coffee, I guarantee you that much. But anyways, uh, maybe some of you came to hear my sister Cindy speak tonight. Uh, Cindy passed the, the baton off to me because she's, something's going on with her throat. And that's sad for all of us because I think she's the best female speaker alive, you know, and, uh, some of you might have heard when there's only about six or eight people in the room, Deborah called me Hot Dog. Uh, that's my sister's nickname to me. And for the life of God, I don't know why I ended up with that nickname. How do you end up with a name or a food that you don't even like? And I don't, I don't think I look like a dog, but she called me Hot Dog. So when she sent the contact information to Deborah, it came across as Hot Dog and my phone number. Never called up and says, is this hot dog? Oh my God, who's calling me hot dog? Anyways, welcome to the day counters. You know, uh, I don't know what you think you're looking at, but here's my story. I was raised by a German guy and my mother's 100% Eskimo. So I got this cultural difference between an Eskimo and a German. And I look, I look nothing like my dad. You can't tell this because we're on these little bitty screens, you know. Um, but my dad stands about six foot two. He has blonde hair, blue eyes, and fair skin. He's about as German as you can get. And I know I look nothing like him. I mean, I have really dark skin. I used to have jet black hair, but look at this one. I'm turning blonde right in front of you guys. Raise the new blonde. So anyways, uh, because of this cultural difference between my, and I didn't know my mom. She left when I was 11 months old, as the story goes. I, I didn't know her. Uh, I'm the youngest of three, but she's the 100% Eskimo. That's the lady that I ended up looking a little bit like. But because of this cultural difference, all three of us kids look a little different. 
you know, uh, my brother, who's the oldest, he, he got a lot of my father's height. He stands about six foot one, and his facial structure is a little different than mine. If you looked at my brother as we were growing up, my brother, brother really looked Korean. You know, my sister Cindy, Cindy C, who speaks all over the freaking world, uh, she got a lot of my mother's Eskimo features. So she ended up with really slanted eyes, you know. She got teased being a Jap and a chink while we were growing up in elementary school. You know, so I got a, a white father, a Korean brother, a Japanese sister. And I put two and two together when I was a kid. I mean, I was a thinker before I was a drinker. I don't know if any of you can identify with that. But my superpower is my ability to think. And I put two and two together when I was a kid. I said, my name is Marty, but my given name is Martin. And when I used to have black hair, I sort of look Mexican, you know? And I put two and two together and I says, you know what, my name is Marty, but my given name is Martin. And I went, oh my God, that's a Mexican name. So I used to practice this in the bathroom mirror when I was growing up. I used to look at myself and I used to cock my head back and I'd squint my eyes and I used to go, is he Martin? You know, and that R rolled so perfectly, I knew I was Mexican. So the whole picture's jacked up before I even take a drink. You know, white father, Korean brother, Japanese sister, I feel Mexican, well, it's over Eskimos. So I needed a drink before I picked one up. Now, I've met my mom. I'm going to bounce around a little bit here. i got 30 minutes. But I, I've met my mom. I met my mom in sobriety. And uh, I tried to build one of those great AA podium stories that how I reunited with my mom in my first year of sobriety, who I never knew. And uh, she came down from a high school graduation and uh, I moved up to Alaska with her. And that was a very trying move. You know, here's a Southern California boy who's never left California. Now I'm gonna move to Alaska and try to make a great relationship with mommy, you know, and it didn't work out. Mom's a pretty bad drunk. She's still getting drunk today. She's 82 years old. To the best of our knowledge, she's still doing cocaine and alcohol on a regular basis. And uh, when I was up there in Alaska, I, I learned all kinds of things. You know, I learned her side of the story of why they separated and they're no longer together. And one night when she got drunk, she cried her eyeballs out to me and let me know that she used to feed all three of us kids beer in our bottle. But that's how bad of a drunk she was. We got down between formula, milk, and beer. She'd always buy the beer, she told me. So who knows what my first drink of alcohol was? Probably an infant for all I knew. And uh, that doesn't make me an alcoholic. But this whole picture is jacked up. Now, if if you're an alcoholic of my type, just because the picture's all jacked up and you feel weird, doesn't mean you don't try to make it even more goofy. Because what I did is I met this kid I was nine years old. At the age of nine, I hadn't picked up a drink of, a conscious drink of my choice. I know that I drank. I drank at my father's second wedding. I know that. But uh, I was nine years old. And I didn't like the way I looked. I didn't like my family. And uh, I met this kid who was everything I wanted to be. It looks like, according to the screen I'm looking at, most of us have been nine years old. But I was nine years old and I met this kid who was 11. And I got to hang out with him. You know, if you're nine years old, you get to hang out with an 11 year old, you're already moving up. You know, so I met this kid and externally he's everything I wanted to be. I've always wanted to be white and he's white. You know, I've always wanted the blonde hair. He had blonde hair, you know, he had green eyes. I thought, okay, green eyes, blue eyes. I wanted blue eyes, but green's cool. And then I started talking to him. This is in Riverside, California. I started talking to him and nobody sounded like him in my little bitty world, except for this guy on television by the name of Jethro Bodine. What I did is I just met a kid that moved out from Louisville, Kentucky. And he's about as Southern as you can get. So if you have low self-worth and low self-esteem issues like I do, you hang out with a set of people long enough. You're like dressing like them, walking like them, and talking like them. And that's what I did. You know, uh, I somehow I picked up a southern draw by hanging out with this hillbilly. So now I'm going to make my picture even worse. You know, I've got all that other stuff I already told you about going on. But now I'm going to start talking with this southern draw. And after hanging out with him for a whole year, I turned totally bilingual. I speak, I speak hillbilly and I speak English. 
You know, and I'm starting to walk into my own house, looking at my own family, saying, how y'all doing? You know, and I'd make reference to things being about yay long and stuff over yonder. And if you weren't convinced that I was a hillbilly, I'd start singing some hillbilly songs, like, what you gonna do when the pond goes dry? You wanna sit on the bank and watch tadpoles die? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, folks, you needed to throw alcohol at me, because this is a bad deal going on. So I met this hillbilly, I went over to his house, I stole a pack of cigarettes. Why? Because I got in trouble before I even picked up a drink. I started smoking cigarettes when I was six years old. First time I got caught ditching school was at seven years old in first grade. Now you think about that. You're ditching class in first grade at the age of seven. Usually when you ditch school, you're going somewhere, you're gonna do something. I'm seven, where was I gonna go? We're like to the other sandbox. I don't know. So anyways, I, I did. I went to the other sandbox and I got caught. And all I did was I laid there. I was trying to hide from everybody. So I got caught ditching at seven years old. I started smoking at six, nine years old. I'm hanging out with this hillbilly. He turned me on to alcohol that day. And now that Duvall was off and running. And I love cheap beer. I'm sorry for all you whiskey drinkers. And there's a few of them in here. I danced around the room before the meeting started. This is what's the trip about Zuma is I get to look at the front of everybody's face. You know, you sit in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're normally looking at the back of everybody's head. But here, you get to look at everybody's face. So I walked around the room before this meeting started. I started judging you people because I'm that guy. I was looking around. I was trying to find the whiskey drinkers. You know, I was trying to find the beer drinkers. And then to entertain my little pea brain, I started thinking about what people do for a living. And I think Mike D from San Jose is a retired banker, you know? I just started judging people like that. I had fun with it. I gotta have fun up here. I think Peter, with no last initials, probably retired retired porno star, but you know, I don't know that for a fact. But uh, that's how I entertain my brain. So when I was growing up, I, I, I had a jacked up pitcher. He turned me on to alcohol that day and I was off and running. I gotta tell you, I drank between the ages of nine and 15. I drank for six years. But when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1977 at the ripe young age of 15, there weren't a lot of people doing that. There's a lot of people getting sober at 15 years nowadays, but uh, hardly any of them ever stayed sober. And myself, my sister also got sober in 77, <coughs> also at the age of 15, <coughs> just different times of the year. And we ran across a couple other people that I got sober as teenagers. We were just really, really rare. And in those six years that I was out there drinking and using, I didn't get that much of a story. You know, had I known I was gonna be speaking in Alcoholics Anonymous later on in life, I would stay out there for a few more years and built you guys a better story. But I came in with what I came in with. And in those six years, I racked up a couple of DUIs. I racked up three breaking injuries. I got kicked or dropped out of five different schools. I was on probation, summary probation by the time I came to you guys. So see, I was building issues, you know? And I don't think you should have one DUI story, let alone two, if you don't even have a driver's license. But that's just my story, you know? Uh, I got to entertain this little thing called a brain and you know, I don't know about you, I thought about this today, this diagnosis ADD. You know, I looked it up. Because see, when I was growing up, I probably would have been diagnosed with it, but I was acting out that way before they came out with that diagnosis. You know, when you act out with so like ADD behavior, back in my days, people used to just yell at you, They'd get right up to your face and just yell at you. Sit down, shut up, and pay attention. That's how they dealt with ADD back then, you know. Now I guess you get medication for that, so that's pretty cool. And uh, so, anyways, I, I was just building my story. I'll tell you about my deep one of my DUIs real quick. Maybe we'll both of them. I'm not a bad guy. When I said I got caught breaking and entering, I didn't steal your stuff. I just broke into your house to see what made you so happy, and also to eat your food because see, I born and raised by an alcoholic father. I told you my mom's an alcoholic, but my dad's an alcoholic. He just celebrated 47 years. You know, before last week we go in order, I have 43 years, my sister has 44 years, my current mom has 45 years, and my dad has 46 years. Now my dad's got 47 years, so we all gotta catch up to him again. 
But uh, this lifestyle and the way that I was born and raised uh, was pretty bad. And like I said, I didn't break into your house to steal your stuff with an alcoholic father doing his thing and no mom around. Uh, we didn't have food often. So break in your house and eat your food. We didn't have a TV, so I'd break in your house and turn on your TV. And now that I've owned a house, it'd be pretty creepy if you came home and the door's busted open and the window's broken and there's nothing missing, but your TV's on and there's a little yogurt cup on the coffee table. You know, that just means S.A. Martin was there, you know? So I got the message. I'm halfway through my talk. So guess what? I got sober. I got sober at 15, 1977. Uh, I remember going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And somebody, somebody stood up and gave a GSR report. And I'm sure this group will have a GSR representative. It's a group service representative. And they said back in 1977, the person stood up and said, you know, uh, there's a lot of young people coming into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1977. He says, there's a lot of young people, young, young people coming in. And the best that the GSO in New York could come up with is the average young person coming in Alcoholics Anonymous in 1977 was 32. Now it's 15. Like I told you, I was a thinker before I was a drinker. I got dropped out or kicked out of five different schools, but I knew basic math. And I thought to myself real quick here, is the average young person coming in Alcoholics Anonymous is 32 and I'm only 15. That means I could try what you guys have to offer for 10 years. And if I don't like what you guys have to offer after 10 years, I can still go out and drink for another five years and still come back in under the average young age. So that's how I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with some basic math. I had no idea these things called slogans. I started doing everything that you guys said that you did from the podium. If you said you got a big book, I went out a big book. You said you got commitments. I went and got some commitments. You guys said that you went and got a sponsor. I found out what a sponsor was. I went and got myself a sponsor. And I was only 15 years old. I was pretty shallow. And I got this guy. I'm not kidding. I got this guy in my hometown of Sandy Valley. And his name was Stormy. And the only reason I got him as a, as a sponsor is because he had a fun, cool name. I mean, who wouldn't want to get a guy named Stormy as your sponsor? And then I found out within minutes how he got the nickname. Because I went up to him and said, hey, Stormy, will you be my sponsor? He goes, you're that little kid trying to get sober. I said, yes. He says, how long are you sober? I said, I'm 31 days sober. And he says, well, you've shared for the whole 31 days. So I want you to stop sharing because we want to hear the message, not the mess. I'm like, oh, I don't like this thing called a sponsor now. He says, and I really don't like the way you think. You think you've got the superpower and the ability to think beyond all of us. But I gotta tell you, your thinking's off. So every time you use the word think, I'm gonna hang up or walk away. Or what does that have to do with sobriety? So here's this guy who doesn't like the way I think. He wants me to stop sharing. And I just want to get sober, start doing the stuff that you guys talked about from the podium. You know, I wanted some of those cool podium stories. That Stormy is a sponsor, and because he didn't like the way I think, uh, I got rid of him rather quickly. I don't got another sponsor. Got this guy named Joe. His name was his nickname was Tire Shop Joe. But back in the seventies, there's not a lot of creativity to nicknames. He owned a tire shop, and his name was Joe. That's how I got the nickname Tire Tire Shop Joe. And there's a guy in our group named Carpenter Mike. No creativity, folks. His name was Mike, and he was a carpenter. Uh, and there's Billy Dancing Kelly. Well, she was a belly dancer, and her name is Kelly. So, anyways, I got this dude, Tire Shop Joe, as my sponsor, you know, and he stared the jeebies at him, and he told me not to make it the major decision in my first year of sobriety. And he scared me so much, and Stormy scared me so much. I didn't make a major decision until I was two years sober. I got sober at 15, and because I had a bad record of going to high school, or actually not going to high school, uh, I ended up going to continuation school and I was able to go up my own pace and I graduated early. So I got a, a high school diploma at the age of 16. You know, and uh, my dad got a job transfer. 
to this place called Roseburg, Oregon. I didn't even know where it was. And my brother, who was the oldest, left home and he joined this militant group called the United States Navy. And I watched him. You know, and he was sober at the time. My sister left home and she joined this militant group. They meet on the west side of Los Angeles in California. And they're called the Pacific Group. And I watched her. You know, and so I ended up going to Roseburg, Oregon with my dad. I'm coming up on two years sober. I'm coming up on 17 years old. And I have a high school diploma in my back pocket. It's almost two years of sobriety. I felt like I should be at least CEO of like the universe. And I was only busing tables at Denny's. So I wasn't pleased with my progress. So I thought about my brother. I thought about my sister. And uh, I went and joined the United States Navy. I was a thousand miles away from my sponsor. I didn't run this by anybody. I went to the Tuesday night Roseburg participation meeting. There was 19 men and one woman in Alcoholics Anonymous in 1979 in Roseburg, Oregon. And everybody shared every single night. There's only 20 people in the meeting every single night all week long. Everybody gets to share all the time. So it came my turn to share and I stuck out my little bony chest with his two little hairs on it. I'm 17 years old. I went to make my first major decision, folks. I went and joined the United States Navy. And all 19 guys and one woman started going. And why didn't you run this by your sponsor? What were you thinking? I'm thinking, man, I got the ability to think. I'm not my superpower. I know how to think. I joined the Navy with two years of sobriety. I'm here to tell you, you can go into the Navy, United States Navy with two years of sobriety, do four years and come out with six years of sobriety. It's not easy, but it can be done. You know, and I started getting these things called the 12-step call because I never used to keep the I didn't get to go on 12-step call because I was underage. No central office sent me or my sister out on a 12-step call because we were underage. So I first got my first 12-step call in the United States Navy. Because you know, they found out on this boat that I was on that I was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That leaked out somehow. My chief took me up to the captain's cabin and says, you know what? This guy's supposedly like two and a half years sober in that self-help program. And the captain of the ship looked at the chief and said, what are you talking about? He says, yeah, he's got two and a half years sober in that, in that self-help group thing. I think they call themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. And the captain looked at me and he threw down a little shot of scotch. He went two and a half years. And he did this, like in a row. And I went, yeah, two and a half years in a row. He says, like weekends and holidays too. And I went, yes, sir. He says, great, you're now our coder. Coda stood for Council on Drug and Alcohol Abuse. This is 1980. This is back when Nancy Reagan was trying to promote Just Say No. So the Navy was jumping on board and they're trying to say Just Say No to people having a problem with alcohol. A lot of people in the Navy have a problem with alcohol. So I got my first 12-step call. It didn't go very well. I was down in the engine room. I was taking part of a pump or evaporator or something like that. I have tools and parts all over the deck. I'm taking things apart. This big old Mexican dude came down. And in real life, I'm five foot six. And back then, I was weighing about 136 pounds. And this dude is about six foot four, weighing about 270. But he's much bigger than me. But something went south on this 12 step call. I don't know what happened. I really don't. The next thing you know, he started beating the crap out of me. I'm like, hey, this ain't a 12 step call. This is not how it's supposed to turn out. You know, I'm too light to fight, too thin to win, and somebody beat me up. I pick up the equalizer, so I picked up the screwdriver and this wrench, and I started defending myself. You know, I'm telling see, I told you you need AA, you know, and uh, he took my screwdriver away, and he stabbed me in my chest, and I still have a scar today of my first 12-step call. So I've been not the rocket to start on this thing called sobriety. I did my four years, I Went to 10 different countries. I've been to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in 10 different countries. I know this, if you're traveling around the world, that you can call up the GSO in New York. They say, hey, my name is Marty. I'm an alcoholic. I'm pulling into Perth, Australia. They will give you a name and phone number of somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous in Perth, Australia. They'll do that in Singapore and Hong Kong and Japan and Korea. They'll do it all over the world. So I've been to meetings in 10 different countries. One little cute story, I went to a meeting in Pusan, Korea. And I couldn't find this meeting, it was at a church. I found a door that was slightly cracked open, and the light was coming out. I was late because I couldn't find it. I walked in and there was five Korean guys. Back in 1980, Korean women didn't have a drinking problem. <laughs> right. And uh, 
So I walked in, there's five Korean guys there. They're speaking Korean, and I don't speak Korean. I speak English, and they don't speak English. But I think I was in the right room because there's a thick blue book and there's a thin blue book. I thought that was the big book in the 12 and 12. They had Korean writing on it, so I couldn't read that. So I just assumed that was the big book in 12 and 12. And they had tea going. Not coffee, but tea. And I figured out oh, tea, coffee, same thing, you know. So I sat down and some dude got done sharing, I think, because he paused for a long period of time. And so I started clapping like we do. You know, and I was the only person clapping in the room. I got your message, Jim. Thank you. And uh, another guy shared, and he got done sharing. I clapped again. Oh, man, I'm the only one with clapping. You know, and I think they all got done sharing because they all turned their heads and looked right at me. I went, oh, it must be my turn to share. So I shared in English. And when I got done sharing, they all just looked at each other and went, They clap for the American, you know? So I think I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Pusan Korea. It could have been an elders meeting for the church. I don't know. But the point is, is I walked away and I felt better. I got out of the Navy. I went and joined the Pacific Group. I uh, saw this lady take a nine-month chip. And I believe I'm waiting until you have a year of sobriety before I date you. That's just what I heard. So I watched her for three months. I think the police report, the police report called it stalking. I called it watching, but you know, somatics, right? So I watched her for three months and I asked her out and then nine months later, she gave me her first little boy named Joe with his kidneys. He's part Eskimo, so we call him Eskimo Joe. You know, a few years later, she gave me his little daughter named Sophia. Then she, you know, I'm married, I got two kids. I moved to a different city to raise my family in a nicer environment in Los Angeles. Things are going pretty good. My wife at that time threw me a 25-year party, and this is pre-cell phone days. But we did have an answer machine that we were doing well financially. The other night I come home, my wife says, hey, somebody RSVP to to your party. Somebody's RSVP to your party. And she said that every night I was coming home. I came home one night, she said, oh, my God. She says, I think one of you guys got drunk. She said, you need to listen to the answer machine. So I went to the answer machine and it was not one of my guys who got drunk. I don't like it when the guys I sponsor drink, but it wasn't anybody that got drunk. It was my hillbilly friend from 25 years ago. And somehow he moved back to Louisville, Kentucky and he got more hillbilly. I don't know how he did that, but because I was fully bilingual, I was able to, you know, to uh, translate for my wife. I said, no, this ain't a drunk guy. This is my hillbilly friend. He's saying, hi, Marty, how are you? It doesn't sound like that. You're from Louisville today. Yeah. How are you? You know, that's what it sounds like. And so I called him up and says, Tim, I says, are you RSVP to my 25 year party? And he says, oh, hell, Marty, you're older than 25. I said, yeah, I'm just celebrating 25 years of sobriety. I says, in November, and it's the next month. And he says, oh, hell, in November, I have 24 years sober. I went, wow, you joined AA too? He says, no, I went and married an ornery bitch. So, I mean, not, AA is not for everybody. You can marry the wrong person or maybe the right person. And that lady made him quit drinking. He hasn't picked up a drink since 1978, you know. And uh, I had a little setback. I was 31 years sober. I had a, what I call my week from hell. On Monday, my son, that little boy, Eskimo Joe, he's 17 years old. He got jumped and beaten so badly he needed facial reconstructive surgery. And Tuesday, I found out that I lost an office office building I bought for a family business. Now it might be problems of abundance, but it still hurt. Wednesday, I was charged with two felony counts of tax evasion. I found out my office manager is stealing my money, not making my payroll employee taxes. And I found out that's a felony. And because I reached a certain dollar amount, they charged me with two felonies. So I was being locked up 31 years sober for three years. And I was not looking forward to that at all. On Thursday, Thursday I found out that we're going to be losing the house that we've been living in for 12 years. You know, I got your message, Jim. And uh, Friday, I went up to my wife to see how she's doing with all this information because she was so well, so as I said. And she announced the divorce after 18 and a half years of marriage. So that's one hell of a week. You know, thank God that I have the people that I have in my life. I have people with really, really weird, dry senses of humor. 
uh, speaking at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that week from hell just happened. And the whole thank you line's coming out I, after the meeting. Everybody's thanking with me. People are crying with me. I was crying because it's so fresh and new and hard to deal with. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to stay sober, all this stuff. And I have this buddy named Matt. Matt came through the line and says, Marty says, that's a hell of a story, Marty. He says, yes, it is, Matt. This is a hell of a week. You went through it a week with somebody who goes through the whole decade. I says, yeah, Matty, I wiped off a couple of tears, you know. He says, I only have one question for you. I says, what's that, Matt? He says, what the hell happened Saturday? No, no, but I don't know people like you. I need humor like that. It was the first time I ever got to laugh about that week. But I don't, I don't know what happened Saturday. My head was spinning. Shortly after that, my dog died. And shortly after that, my sponsor of 17 years died. A lot of stuff happened real quick. And I lost it all. What's my life like today, man? I sponsor a handful of guys. I do step work. I go through the big book with these guys. Some of them fall asleep, but I go through it with them. You know, I got service commitments. I was just secretary of the Wednesday night meeting, December group meeting for last year. That was interesting, all on Zoom. I got a great life today. I'm with a new lady. We're getting married October 10th. She's pretty cool. You could have told me when I was going through that divorce after 18 and a half years that I'd meet somebody better. I would not have believed you. I would not have believed you one iota. You would have told me my life would get better. I would not believe you. You know, I don't want to know what my solution is. I'll end with this, folks. I don't know what your solution is neither. It reminds me of the story of a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who was a pharmacist. This pharmacy started doing pretty good as he went out and hired his first employee. But where do you get employees? You get employees from noontime meetings. Because people at noontime meetings usually don't have a job. So he went to a noontime meeting and hired this brand newcomer out of the meeting. Pharmacists went to the pharmacy the very next morning. It was already lit up. The lights were on. People walked around the open signs blinking. And he walked and he saw some guy leaning heavily up against the wall. Concern looked on his face. And he acknowledged him. He went back to the pharmacy where this newcomer was. The pharmacist says, hey, you opened up for me early. He says, yes, sir, you gave me a job. I was so grateful. I thought I'd come out and open, open up early and show you my gratitude. And the pharmacist says, that's okay. He says, look at the newcomer. He says, but what's wrong with the guy by the front door just leaning so heavily up against the wall? And the newcomer says, well, sir, he came in for a cough and I couldn't get a hold of you. And so the pharmacist says, what'd you do? The newcomer says, well, I gave him a whole bottle of laxatives. And the pharmacist says, you idiot, you can't treat a cough with laxatives. And the newcomer says, you want to bet he's afraid to cough. So one more time, I don't know what you guys' solution is. I barely know what mine is, but it seems like I do a little bit of big work, a little bit of sponsorship, a little bit of step work, a little bit of commitments, a little bit of smile. Things go pretty darn good. Thanks for having me, you guys. Have a good night.